And I'm going to read uh, a lesson from Exodus, or rather Leviticus, chapter 10. This is found on page 88 of our Pew Bibles. And it is uh, one of the, the stark reminders in the Old Testament that God set apart His worship as a holy place where His law is to be obeyed uh, with great uh, rigor and force. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. And Moses called Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come near, carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. And so they came near and carried them in their coats out of the camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons, Do not let the hair of your heads hang loose. Do not tear your clothes, lest you die, and wrath come upon all the congregation. But let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled. And do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting, lest you die, for the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. And the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, and between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. Thus far, the reading of God's word, and and we see there very many principles, right? Uh, Nadab and Abihu tried to get creative in their worship. They brought a fire, an offering to God that he didn't ask for. It was unauthorized. And they're struck down in this lesson, this illustration of the fact that God's worship is holy. It's not common. In your day-to-day life, creativity is a good thing. It's fine to wear different clothes. You can let your hair go wild someday. You can have a drink, right? But coming into the altar and addressing Aaron, this is not any old person. This is the priest, right? Come before God. Those who come into my presence must be sanctified. And this is a principle which we apply in general to uh, our worship, our gathered worship in particular in the church. And so I'm going to turn... Uh, to our confession, which is there uh, in our bulletin. It's, it's a short one. It's also in the back of our Psalter hymnal, if you want to read it there. And we'll confess uh, this together. Um, there is really kind of four sentences here. Uh, there's something we confess that we would be uh, taught by God's Word. And then there are things that we affirm or accept and things that we reject. And finally, there is a statement about excommunication. So let's uh, recite together Article 32. We also believe that although it's useful and good for those who govern the churches to establish and set up a certain order among themselves for maintaining the body of the church, they ought always to guard against deviating from what Christ, our only Master, has ordained for us. 
Therefore, we reject all human innovations and all laws imposed on us in our worship of God, which bind and force our consciences in any way. So we accept only what is proper to maintain harmony and unity and to keep all in obedience to God. To that end, excommunication, with all it involves, according to the word of God, is required. Well, we are in the section of our Confession of Faith uh, dealing with the church. And as we know, uh, the Belgic Confession of Faith and the Reformation in general uh, was a reform of the church. It was a reform of worship. It was a reform of church authority and church governance, as well as a reformation about the recovery of the gospel. These two things went hand in hand. The gospel had to be uh, communicated effectively through the means which God has established, which is the church. And so these last 11 articles of the Confession of Faith, um, really about a third of our Belgic Confession, are focused on the church. Uh, We are uh, confessing here the simple truth. It sounds quite simple, but it's difficult to execute in practice. That the church is to be ruled by Christ. Though it is a human institution and humans occupy its offices, we've looked in previous weeks at pastors and elders and deacons, yet the constitution of the church is the word of God. In other words, these pastors and elders and deacons and indeed all the members of the church are called and structured and organized in such a way that they preserve the centrality of God's word as a rule of life for these people. And this article, though it is brief, is very important. It establishes this crucial principle uh, that is held, especially in the matters of worship, by Reformed churches, uh, often goes by the name of the regulative principle. Now what the regulative principle states, simply, is that we do in worship what God has commanded. It sounds pretty obvious, right? Don't, Don't all Christians believe that? And in point of fact, uh, they don't. There are different views on how we are to govern our worship. There are very many Christian traditions that think that ancient tradition is a good guide to what we should do in worship. Well, the church has, has traditionally set apart 40 days before Easter for the, uh, for the you know, uh, mortification of the flesh and the preparation of celebrating the resurrection. This tradition is good. It's useful. We call it uh, Lent. Let's, let's keep doing this. Um, In fact, in the context of of our Belgic Confession of Faith, uh, the medieval church had very many feast days and fast days. Days where you couldn't eat meat. And the Protestant Reformation, in uh, Switzerland in particular, was actually kicked off by an episode called the Affair of the Sausages. My favorite Reformation event, the Affair of the Sausages. Some people got together and fried up sausage. when, When the church said, you shall not eat meat. He said, the church can't bind our conscience. The word of God doesn't tell me I can't eat meat on on Thursday before Easter. How can the church bind our consciences, create a sin out of something which is permissible? So this is a very important principle. And it's uniquely held particularly by Reformed and Presbyterian churches. The regulative principle of worship. And it forms and shapes our worship. It's why our worship is pretty simple and unordained. We are focused on elements which are explicitly commanded the church in uh, the New Testament. 
And this article sums up nicely what Article 29 said about the mark of the marks of the church. It concluded that section by saying, In short, the church governs itself according to the pure word of God, rejecting all things contrary to it, and holding Jesus Christ as the only head. Now I'm going to go through, I got the order a little bit wrong in my, in my prefatory comment, but I want to go through these, these four, uh, really four sentences, four statements that are to be noted in this article. First, it is to be acknowledged that a certain order must be established in the church to maintain it. Now, we could say, I'm only going to do what the church of the, New, the Bible, what God's word commands. What time should we start our communion service this morning? That's a simple example, but if we are commanded to gather for public worship, and we are left free in the matter of when that worship shall take place, what time of day, what venue in someone's home, in a garage, in a special building, uh, we have to establish a certain order, a certain rule. Uh, Christ Reformed D.C. is incorporated in the eyes of the civil law. Uh, We have bylaws. We follow certain rules regarding reporting for the purposes of taxation. Um, This is all well and good. Because all of these structures, rules around how we elect our officers and elders and call a pastor, all of these rules set to preserve the word of God as the only uh, absolute rule that governs us. So these are our lesser ordinances, we might say, a certain order among ourselves to maintain the body of the church. And in doing all of these things, we seek to guard against deviating from what Christ has ordained, even in these prosaic and somewhat mundane things. Um, We have, for instance, in the United Reformed Churches, a church order. It's relatively brief, um, but it commands us, it instructs us, uh, it binds us as churches... In a federation, the URCNA, it binds us by what we hold in common. How we hold our regular uh, broader assemblies, classes, and synod. When we gather, how a new church joins us, how we establish a new church, how we go about missions. It's called a church order. So that's the first point. The second point is something that follows from this. Therefore, we reject all human innovations and all laws imposed on us in our worship of God, which bind and force our consciences in any way. So these are rules that a church might establish that would go beyond the clear teaching of Scripture. It doesn't go beyond God's law to say, we're going to hold our worship service at 10.30 a.m. That's not a binding. Is it a constraint? Yeah. Yeah. If you have something else you want to do at 10.30 a.m. on Sunday, and you want to be a member of Christ Reformed Church, you're going to be bound a little bit. Worship is uh, a fundamental aspect of what we do as a church and what individual members are expected to do. What you must do to be united to this body. We are united in our worship. Literally, our voices are united in singing the same songs, in confessing the same prayers. We're united to one another in faith and in Christ. In, in the Lord's Supper, we are united, one cup, one loaf. And so this is not only an expression of our unity, but it is an instrument in God's hands to work us and weave us together in union with one another. So uh, the church uh, rejects uh, an imposition of laws, 
There are some churches um, in, in various different revivalistic traditions that, right, that go beyond God's word. That go beyond God's word in terms of what may be dressed or how we may uh, clothe ourselves. What we may eat and drink. Uh, don't dance or chew or go with those that do. Um, but these commands go beyond God's word. So we reject human innovations and laws imposed upon us. But there's something we affirm. And that's the third sentence here. So we accept only what is proper to maintain harmony and unity and to keep all in obedience to God. Now, our church confessions, uh, some might say, well, well, that's not scripture. And it says a whole lot in there. I mean, for um, among churches in our day, we're pretty, um, uh, we might say, maximalist in how we confess our faith. We say explicitly what we believe in our catechism, in our Belgian confession, and in the canons of Dort. We believe, however, that, that these uh, forms, which are a part of our membership process, that these forms are a source of harmony and unity. And the force and the power of these human documents, our confessions of faith, ancient creeds, the force and the power of those things is entirely dependent upon them being faithful summaries of Scripture. Their authority is ministerial. They're servants of God's Word. And if they don't effectively summarize God's Word, uh, they aren't to be followed. Why do we have a membership process? Why are we a confessional church? To preserve harmony and unity and to keep all obedience to God. This is so that we might be unified in a common faith, common life, common gospel, and in a common discipline together. These are instruments God has uh, given us. And so there is a real discipline here. There is real discipline required to become a member of the church. That's, that's why discipline is a mark of the church. And that brings us to the fourth and final point of this short article. Kind of comes out of nowhere. You might be thinking, all of a sudden we're talking about excommunication. What's going on? To that end, excommunication with all that involves, according to the word of God, is required. Is required. And this speaks to the third mark of the church in particular, and in Confession Article 29, the mark of discipline. The church, the true church, practices church discipline for correcting faults. The church is not empowered to bind consciences beyond how the word of God binds consciences. But where God's word speaks, we are empowered and we are required to hold one another accountable to God's holy law. Excommunication is in the context of worship. It is in the context of communing at the Lord's table. In communing people in the gospel of grace and their unity in the body of Christ, we establish, we speak to who are members of Christ by faith and who are not. This is known elsewhere in our confessions and in the history of the church as the power of the keys. This comes from Matthew chapter 16. After uh, Peter confesses Christ as the Messiah, Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Christ is establishing an apostolic church. 
And of course, this statement was very much debated in the time of the medieval church and the time of Reformation when the Pope in Rome excommunicated Martin Luther, not for sinful behavior, not for violating God's law, but for his teaching about the gospel. So this became a flashpoint. Our catechism teaches on this. Should those be admitted to the Lord's Supper who show by what they profess and how they live that they are unbelieving and ungodly? Should the church commune sinners who aren't repentant? And the catechism says, no, that would dishonor God's covenant and bring down God's wrath upon the entire congregation. It's, it's citing 1 Corinthians there, where, where Paul says that certain people in your church have died for eating improperly. Therefore, the catechism continues, according to the instruction of Christ and his apostles, the Christian church is duty-bound to exclude such people by the official use of the keys of the kingdom until they reform their lives. Brothers and sisters, gospel ministry means opening the gates of heaven to believers. And you can only open the gates of heaven to believers by closing them to unbelievers. And the catechism says this in the following uh, questions. 83. What are the keys of the kingdom? The preaching of the Holy Gospel and Christian discipline toward repentance, both of them open the kingdom of heaven to believers and close it to unbelievers. Ministers in Christ's church are given real authority to communicate the gospel and to exercise the authority of that gospel by saying, this supper, membership in Christ's body, is open to believers, not to anyone. It requires repentance. Question 84. How does preaching the Holy Gospel open and close the kingdom of heaven? According to the command of Christ. The kingdom of heaven is opened by proclaiming and publicly declaring to all believers, each and every one, that as often as they accept the gospel promise in true faith, God, because of Christ's merit, truly forgives all their sins. And the kingdom of heaven is closed, however... By proclaiming and publicly declaring to unbelievers and hypocrites that as long as they do not repent, the wrath of God and eternal condemnation rest on them. God's judgment, both in this life and in the life to come, is based on this gospel testimony. The power of the keys is the power of gospel ministry. It's not about perfect holiness of believers. It's not that we are holier than thou. It's not that we are self-righteous, so far from it. We are self-aware of our sins. We are self-unrighteous. We're Christ-righteous. It's His merit. This is about forgiveness and grace. And our article 32 establishes the power and the authority of the church and limits it and constrains it. You don't excommunicate someone from Christian fellowship because you don't like how they look. Because they come from a different socioeconomic class or a different race. The church has much sin on its hands in this regard. And we have black churches and white churches. And historically there's been much division. This is sinful. It is the gospel. And there are very two important uh, ramifications about our article 32 here. The first is worship. Obviously if you're here with us today, you know that we worship in a way uh, very different than many other Christian churches. And this is why we seek to worship according to God's express command. There is a simplicity, and I believe a great beauty, to biblical worship as it is practiced in Reformed churches. We worship God, as Jesus said in John chapter 4, in spirit and in truth. 
The Lord is seeking worshipers. Our confessions uh, uh, coming up in future weeks turn to three articles, 33, 34, and 35. These articles are pretty long and involved, but they're on the sacraments. Because that's a central part of our mission as a church. To commune, to confirm, to seal the grace of Christ to sinners. There are a lot of uh, things that churches do today in the context of gathered services. There are uh, rock bands. (laughs) There's a lot of music. Sometimes there's smoke and lights. Sometimes there's drama and video. Uh, These are are different means. They're not the ones commanded by God. And the church has always been tempted to do things that God does not command. But the sacraments are the things that Jesus said to do. Go therefore, teaching and baptizing. Do this in remembrance of me. These are explicit commands of our Lord. And as we'll see in the following weeks, this is why we... uh, Minimized the number of sacraments from a medieval church that had added seven, or gotten to a total of seven, added five. And we said, no, Christ himself only commanded two things to be done as a sign and seal of his grace. Our catechism also teaches this same simplicity uh, under the heading of the second commandment. What is God's will for us in the second commandment? That we should in no way make any image of God... That obviously pertains to worship, right? Nor worship him in any other way than has been commanded in God's word. And I love the way question 98 continues. But may not images as books for the unlearned be permitted in churches? This is a contemporary argument in the 16th century. Well, images are very useful because some people can't read. And they can see the stories of the Bible. Isn't it better... Isn't it better, oh, oh Puritan, oh, Reformed man, that the that, that people who can't read would at least know these pictures of, of what the Bible looked like? What was going on? There's, a, there's an argument to use other means. And our catechism responds, no, we should not try to be wiser than God. He wants the Christian community instructed by the living preaching of his word not by idols that cannot even talk. I'm reading a book right now about Christian preaching, and it says, the word is worth a thousand images. (laughs) We have this idea, right, that pictures are more powerful. Stories are more vibrant if they're portrayed visually to us. That's That's a root affirmation of the modern world. Ask any person who's in marketing or media. Watch a sporting event on television, right? Powerful images sell. When God wrote his law on a tablet of stone to be received by Moses on Mount Sinai, I'm pretty confident that about one in a thousand, maybe one in a hundred of those Israelites at the foot of the mountain could read those words. It was not a great time of literacy for slaves in Egypt. And yet God said, you will know my holy will for your lives through this piece of stone on which there are scratchings by my finger because Moses is my prophet notice what he says to Aaron listen to what the Lord has said through Moses his prophet in a time of great idolatry the people wanted a golden calf right no burn that thing up and you got to swallow it or make you sick but that's the lesson to learn because God wants his people to be taught by the preaching of the word
We should not try to be wiser than God. And this is the, the power of the story of Nadab and Abihu. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. The stage and drama, theater, was a regular feature of the first century Greek world in which Paul the Apostle lived. To dramatize an event was a well-known way of communicating it and having people teach their children again and again and again. The New Testament doesn't forbid attendance at the theater, but it explicitly prescribes the preaching of the Word of God for the gathered worship of God's people. The New Testament makes a choice in what means will be used to communicate the grace of Christ. We should not try to be wiser than God. And the second key ramification of this article. So the first one is the regulative principle, how and why we worship. And the second one is really quite simple. The church does have genuine gospel authority. The power of the keys exercised through preaching and discipline to open and close the kingdom of heaven. It is a difficult task, brothers and sisters. We have exercised it and should exercise it sparingly and patiently in Christ's church. It takes a long time for us as a church generally to get to the point where there is a great sin or an obvious demonstration of unbelief among God's household. And we issue a public pronouncement of you are no longer communed. You are excommunicated. We've only done it once in 15 years in this church. And yet it is a real authority that is given to Christ's church. A real necessity if we are going to teach that only in the name of Jesus Christ is there salvation. You must be born again, Jesus taught. And there is salvation, Peter said, in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Therefore God has highly exalted him, Philippians 2, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The gospel invites all men to bow their knee willingly and lovingly of their Savior. But we also confess that in judgment all will bow before our holy King. Let's pray. Merciful God, we seek to serve you humbly in your church and in your world. And we acknowledge that this church is a gateway to heaven. It is an ark in which saints are preserved from the storms of this world and carried through the waters of judgment. Lord, we acknowledge that the only means of salvation is, is not our church, not our lifestyle, not our worship, but Christ with whom we are united, in whose body we become members through our worship. So we pray that you would build your church, that you would strengthen her, and that you would fortify her as we seek to faithfully bear witness until that great and mighty day in the Lord when Jesus returns and every knee bow and every tongue confesses. In his name we pray. Amen.